My name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're going to get comedic, maybe dryly comedic, the thinking man's Kevin Smith, if you will, <laughs> Noah Baumbach. I did think about Kevin Smith as I was watching the first half of Kicking and Screaming again, because I thought, I don't know, visually, this isn't a lot better. <laughs> do you think that uh, Noah Baumbach in his head, inspired by Clerks, because he came after, wanted to do like a Baumbachiverse where like all the characters interconnect in some ways? I think he probably had Wit Stillman on his mind a little bit more than Kevin Smith. <laughs> Wit who? Is he still around? <laughs> I'm afraid so. So, you know, in the past, Justin, you have told me that the podcast is not very good when me, your co-host, is not all that interested in the subject. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you actually believe that or you just said that to rib on me. <laughs> probably uh, ribbing on you. Uh, but anyway, this is an example of one of those weeks. But you like Noah Baumbach at some point, right? Uh, yeah. And you know what? I even still, the two movies I watched in full this week, I watched the first half of Kicking and Screaming and was like, <laughs> no more for reasons I can't even fully explain. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the two movies I watched this week, I actually liked quite a bit. And ever since then, Noah Baumbach has made a steady stream of movies that I have moderately enjoyed. I'm going to say I very much enjoy Noah Baumbach's work and people may be like, Justin, what are you talking about? You hate rich people. And I would say, yes, I agree. But most of the rich people in Noah Baumbach films are pathetic losers. So this week I watched the two that I like a lot, which mm-hmm. are The Squid and the Whale and Greenberg, which I didn't used to like a lot, but watching it this week, I'm a Greenberg convert now, <laughs> you know? I think he's a great character. Now, do you remember when you heard about Noah Baumbach? Because for me, it was definitely as a co-writer of The Life Aquatic. Yes, exactly the same. I saw his name and I said, that's not Owen Wilson. How, <laughs> how come Wes Anderson has a new co-writer now? Why is he recording the commentary in a packed restaurant for The Life Aquatic? And then a year later, along came this movie called The Squid and the Whale. And up to that point, I had not heard of, I, I'm a younger man, mm-hmm. you know? I had not heard of those Gen X iconic movies. Were they iconic movies, though? Because, I mean, I know Kicking and Screaming was released by the Criterion Collection. Yeah, maybe it only became iconic afterwards. I mean, Mr. Jealousy was kind of, uh, it was not a Chasing Amy level smash, Mm -hmm. uh, but but it had its fans. I mean, I watched Mr. Jealousy this week, and it's definitely a fascinating, like, sophomore attempt, because Noah Baumbach's first film, Kicking and Screaming, is about a bunch of losers that uh, graduate college and don't know what to do with their lives and kind of just kick around incapable of moving forward in any way having Kevin Smith's like dialogue but about more like intellectual things yeah and this is what I hate about it I don't know the thing about kicking and screaming is there's just something about it on some chemical level that rubs me the wrong way and always has this is I've seen it three times and every time I start watching it and I, I, I think I want to give this movie a fair shot and there's something about these characters do that, you look in the mirror you're like no me you know, maybe, but I don't know. Maybe it's all, maybe it's the fucking clothes they wear that it doesn't really feel like. I, you know, uh, the thing is, I don't think the movie is that funny. I remember watching it for I the agree. first time and being like, eh, it's okay. But rewatching it again for this podcast, I was amused by their patheticness and the way the movie literally moves nowhere. Like, it is um, very steadfast in the fact that these characters are essentially just trundling downward in place. Okay, I do recognize that the movie talks a good game that these characters are pathetic mm-hmm. but also i think and you're also supposed very to like self-aware because like yeah. the ending is all about like if i did this would it matter and it just goes nowhere i also think you're supposed to kind of like these characters and find them clever and funny do you think you're supposed to find them clever yeah i do okay because i mean this is the issue that i like to call the wit stillman paradox which is 
oh, this is clearly supposed to be satire. <laughs> and then, you know, later on, you listen to Whit Stillman talk a little bit more, and you're like, oh, oh no. I, he thinks that these characters are funny and charming. I don't identify with kicking and screaming in the way that I think you're supposed to and the way that I think a lot mm. of people do. I, I, you know what? I would agree with you. There is supposed to be identification because almost all of Noah Baumbach's films are deeply personal, and they're from a specific time in his life that he is putting on screen and trying to wrestle with in some way. It's like, buddy, get over your dad. <laughs> well, he's not gonna. Well, he just did because his dad passed away, but we'll get into that a little bit later okay i'll tell you if i have a beef it's not even really a beef because as i say i like him more more often than i mm -hmm. dislike him but if i have a concern or a feeling of disappointment about noah bombach it's that you've got the squid and the whale and margot at the wedding and greenberg which are these very acidic very very painful movies at times and then after that there's a softening and i think when you watch something like the the Meyerowitz stories mm -hmm. or mistress america they feel to me so kind of like slight and soft but that's what he wants to do like there's nowhere to go after that trilogy of like acidic films like greenberg is as far as he can go down that narcissistic uh, hole yeah so then you get to something like marriage story which i think is fine mm -hmm. it doesn't hit me the way that greenberg or a movie that I think was a big influence on it, Husbands and Wives, mm. hits me. It feels softer. It feels safer. It feels like kind of a twee and a cute movie that's pretending, that's wearing like the clothes. Which one, of Marriage a tough Story? Movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've uh, said on the podcast that I was very moved by Marriage Story. Mm -hmm. I think the difference between me and you is that your parents are still together. Yeah, there may be something to that. Yes. I respect that. <laughs> and I mean, I've never had any uh, father issues like Noah Baumbach does, uh, which he's wrestled with on screen uh, endlessly in his pictures, especially the squid and the whale. I do think Merit Story is interesting in the context of his career as being like the sequel to the squid and the whale, where mm -hmm. it's like, oh, it's happening all over again. And it's happening to me, the guy that made the squid and the whale. And look, I've become my father, literally. <laughs> I, I am the exact same guy as the guy that Jeff Daniels played. Because if you look at Noah Baumbach's career, what I find fascinating is he can be described as kind of like the preppy Kevin Smith early on in his career. And he clearly made a decision like in Mr. Jealousy it is essentially a riff on like French New Wave films. I don't mm -hmm. think it really works. I described it as it's like Scott Pilgrim for like a dweebs that are in graduate school. <laughs> But I can see him trying to make conscious decisions of like, okay, I don't want to be known as like a Kevin Smith guy. And it really isn't until The Squid and the Whale that, you know, he tried to push that as far away as he can. But while still, I feel being funny. Okay, so we're going to talk about The Squid and the Whale, but I do want to ask you about the one that came in between, the one that stars our friend, not our friend, Peter Bogdanovich. Okay, star is a strong word. <laughs> you hyped it up to me as it starred him. But you didn't watch it, so you would never know. I want to believe it starred him. So Highball is interesting because, I mean, this is what I want directors to do, which is, I believe the story goes that they had some short ends on Mr. Jealousy, so he got uh, most of the cast of Kicking and Screaming, some of the cast of Mr. Jealousy, to shoot in an apartment over five days an entire feature film. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that it was rushed because... It is all shot with like lights really close to the actors, like a Poverty Row film. It's essentially three long vignettes of three parties over one year, and you're tracking a bunch of characters. They're all really unlikable. There's not one fun person in the bunch, except for our man, Peter Bogdanovich, who shows up at two parties and never breaks character. It's always doing an impression. John Wayne, Cary Grant, 
all the classics. This is originally what his character in the other side of the wind was supposed to be. Just a guy, a guy who did impressions. A Rich Little. The time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, wasn't his character originally played by Rich Little yes. in the other side of the wind? I think Noah Baumbach knew this. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Noah Baumbach. Noah Baumbach hung out with Peter Bogdanovich and heard the same stories that we've heard oh, him tell. Over and over again. All those impressions. He's like, this killed on the late show. And it's like, oh my God. Or the Tonight Show even that Peter Bogdanovich used to host. So uh, Highball, not very good. It was actually disowned by Noah Baumbach, but that is like a little like slice of career adventure that I think is fun. That like, oh, okay, this director's sentiments align with the kind of stuff that I would do if I was in the situation that he was. So The Squid and the Whale is the movie that kicked him to a higher echelon. Mm -hmm. It has uh, Jeff Daniels and Laura Linney as this I guess a New York Brooklyn elite power couple, this literary power couple, but obviously he's Okay, he's a faded power guy. And uh, was he ever in power? I can't believe I said power guy. That's <laughs> pathetic. You know, it's hard to improvise a podcast, folks. And so this cup- he, He's a novelist who had early potential, but never quite mm-hmm. achieved his potential. He wrote very dense books, which- have I gone to the university library and gazed at them? Of course I have. Noah Baumbach's dad? Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> and been like, oh man, 800 pages? What is this, John Barth? And in the early scenes, we get the sense that the Laura Lenny character has spent her, spent the whole marriage living in his shadows and has been constantly condescended to, gently put down by her literary non-superstar husband. Mm-hmm. So finally they agree to divorce. And then the movie depicts how battle lines are basically drawn between Jeff Daniels and the older son and Laura Linney and the younger son. And so this is Noah Baumbach, again, trying to pull himself as far away as his previous work. It's shot on, I believe, Super 16. It's handheld, Cassavetes-esque. Mm-hmm. And it's very short. It's like 80 minutes. Yeah. And it's made up of like little vignettes just time is moving very quickly no indicator you're just getting little moments as the relationships evolve and everyone is terrible in their own way but especially Jeff Daniels what a piece of shit yeah I do like how kind of relentlessly unlikable everyone is Laura Lenny's probably the most likable person but the movie even makes kind of uh, motions towards like oh this is why Jesse Eisenberg at this point in his life would turn against her because she had an affair and he sympathizes with his father because his father never never gave him the love that he needed when he was a kid. Uh, Jeff Daniels, I think, is incredible. So funny in this movie. And I think he elevates the writing a little bit because on mm. this on this viewing, I like this movie. On this viewing, I felt that at certain times his character bordered on caricature. Mm-hmm. Like he's kind of like so relentlessly, pithily cruel all the time. And he always has like, like in almost every single scene, I there, there were parts when I was kind of like, okay, the guy's got to have a tender side somewhere. <laughs> but they, they're there are some scenes where there are emotions that are made towards that where mm. he appears vulnerable only in that moment for you mm. to understand why a woman would have spent so many years yeah. with him because what we see in the movie is essentially a monster who is sad pathetic likes to say stuff like mm, well you know that's overrated charles dickens yeah, it's, it's minor minor dickens yeah. all, all the stuff with jesse eisenberg when he's dating that girl yeah. and he's trying to mimic he's his like, father uh, he's like oh yeah uh, the metamorphosis very 
Kafka esque. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was written by Franz Kafka. <laughs> or when she says the Fitzgerald book she likes, and he goes, "Oh yes, I, it's minor Fitzgerald. It's not as good as The Great Gatsby." <laughs> oh man, that's so painful to watch. Because that was you. You know, I wouldn't have necessarily said it like that, but yes, I could see a little bit of myself in that character. I was trying to uh, project myself. Uh, like, was I like that when I was a kid? Probably a little bit. Were but... you masturbating in public all the time? No, never. And wiping my hands up against um, lockers and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that. No, uh, my expression of my parents getting a divorce was just kind of going into myself and just not wanting to interact with anything. Mm. I, I didn't do homework for like five years. I would hide it. I would lie <laughs> all the time. I spent most of my days at babysitter's houses. We would be dropped off at 6 a.m. My parents would pick me up at 7 p.m. So mm. I would only see them in these like little things. And an insane setup in this movie, which I assume is from real life, is that they see their parents on alternating days. That is maddening. Yeah, like... for perfectly equal joint custody. And then every two weeks, they switch the Thursday. Yeah. So, so, yeah. And I love that detail at the end where she says the only reason you wanted to do it this way was so you'd have to pay less <laughs> in child support. <laughs> and you see that, like, the Jeff Daniels character, like, there is an alternate dark universe where we could turn into that person. Like once he has like a heart attack and the ambulance has to come to get him, he tries to make like a joke about like breathless. He's like, remember breathless? Jean-Paul Belmondo says this at the end. She's like, huh? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Oh God. I love the subplot of him and Anna Paquin, mm. which is so painful to watch. <laughs> I mean, this is like cringe comedy, right? Like yeah. before this, there is that element in the Noah Baumbach of he's like poking fun. That's why I like to say that, there is a patheticness there, even though that I can agree with you that you still want to like these characters at a or feel sympathetic or uh, bad. For well, them. so every now and then in the Squid and the Whale, I kind of I kind of get that feeling of like, okay, you're really not over your dad right now mm -hmm. because this is such a poisonous caricature of him. Like I read an interview with Noah Baumbach where he said that like he didn't show the script to his mom and dad who yeah. had read all of his previous scripts. What do you think their faces were like when they finally <laughs> saw the finished movie? <laughs> okay, and now I'm making this complaint, but then I'm saying the later ones are too soft. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. you know, maybe I'm being unfair. Uh, <laughs> Noah Baumbach, it's too real. <laughs> you see your reflection in it. Okay, but how about Greenberg? So Greenberg, this is uh, the most poisonous that I feel Bombac can be. And I was not prepared for this when I saw it in 2010, I think. Mm, because I don't think anybody was, because I could see the uh, used Roger DVD copies as far as the eye can see. People renting it, expecting, I don't know, duplex of Ben Stiller-style comedy? Well, don't you love the cover of that DVD where it's Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig smiling next to each other, and it's got like the quirky colors, and it <laughs> looks, like, looks like Little Miss Sunshine or something? like that and then uh, you know you sit down watch it with your folks and 15 minutes in um ben stiller's going down on a topless greta gerwig yeah so yeah he plays greenberg who is an aging gen xer someone who at one time 15 years ago maybe had a shot at landing a record deal with his fellow bandmates one of whom is played by reese affons mm -hmm. the other one of whom is played by a duplass you mark duplass uh and the duplass he doesn't get along with anymore reese affons he still has a sort of tenuous friendship with but the deal went down because you know greenberg believed in artistic integrity and he couldn't couldn't survive under the terms that the record label was gonna you want to take them it. aside and be like your record would have come out it would have probably not even played anywhere and that would have been it <laughs> like yeah it wouldn't have led to any success but it has haunted these characters and that's all they talk about because that is the focal point in their relationship one of the things i like about the greenberg character is 
he is such a Gen Xer in the sense that he he's angry and he has these sort of vague principles, but there's nothing really behind them. There's no he doesn't have like politics exactly. He's just like, no, he's pissed off. He's against selling out and, <laughs> yeah. he, and he's against the stupidity of the world, mm. which manifests itself in him writing constant letters of complaint to like Starbucks. That is something. such like an old man thing, though. That's like what Grandpa Simpson did in the first few se- uh, seasons of The Simpsons. Yeah, but what he thinks he's doing is like Vice magazine, mm. you know, J- just that free flowing anger at the world but instead he's just kind of aimlessly falling through the world he's just gotten out of i believe they say the mental hospital because he had a nervous breakdown and so he's at his brother's place just to build a dog house and he's house sitting while his brother mm-hmm. and his brother's wife are in vietnam on a holiday and then in comes greta gerwig who's his brother's assistant and they get tangled up together and you just want to say to greta no get out of there stop no don't talk to him she sees some vulnerability in him she sees a human side and the movie goes on and on for 107 minutes of him just being relentlessly poisonous Mm -hmm. just a a truly awful person and then at the end what did you make of the ending was it suggesting that perhaps there might be something redeeming there I don't know. I mean, probably because the idea of that, like, he's not just going to follow a whim that he's going to make a decision to go back. But he is such a toxic person at his heart. Like, I don't think he's able to sustain a relationship from the character we see in the movie. Well, one thing I like about this movie is how it is a compendium of the selfish, self-centered mm-hmm. behavior. Like when Risa Fons, who he hasn't seen in a number of years, comes over to the house for a social call, he says something like, oh, yeah, my friend is having this this barbecue. Uh, Why don't we go just get a drink? And uh, Ben Stiller is trying to say, like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, we could we could, I don't know, do that. We could go to a bar. We could hang out here. You know, we've got a we've got gung ho on on (laughs) VHS. And he's like, do you think gung ho holds up today? (laughs) Yeah. And and it's like Like today. Yeah. Anything to not. Just do the simple favor of going to the friend's house. Do you find Noah Baumbach's dialogue funny? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I find it very funny. In like, this movie, I found it really funny. And like, even in Squid in the Whale, like all of just Daniel's asides, I'm just like, mm, oh, that's so good because you know somebody like that who would say stuff. I thought that scene when he's meeting Jennifer Jason Lee, the ex-girlfriend. For oh, coffee. and he's just talking about himself. And then she's like, my mom died. And he doesn't break the sentence that he said. I think that is such a perfect scene, like where he starts it by apologizing for some minor slight from mm. 15 years ago that she's forgotten. But he's doing this big show of doing an apology about it only because he wants to be seen as the kind of guy who apologizes for something. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but he's incapable of moving beyond just himself when she opens up and tells him something emotional that he would have to react he to. He immediately swats it away. And then two minutes later, he's like, oh, yeah. He, he I'm sorry said, about your mom. Yeah, sorry about your mom. <laughs> yeah. Woo. And so, like you said in your review, that now you can look back. And I mean, everybody has a little bit of green. We're all green. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm curious to know where that came out of Noah Baumbach's life. Like, where was he at that point? Yeah, I, w- I wonder to what extent he thought he was Greenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, is this when the relationship with uh, Greta Gerwig formed? <laughs> And they actually started a uh, dating. Well, I mean, who knows? Listen, we're not the gossip mags here. Who knows what goes on behind closed doors, but the later films... Beyond green doors. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, But the later films do bespeak a certain softening in him. Like they, They seem like the work of a more mellow and less angry filmmaker. Uh, could that be because he's found uh, happiness in his domestic life? I can't say. What do you think of Francis Ha, though? I like it. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, I really like Francis Ha, and I think it captures like a different image of someone younger than Greenberg. Mm-hmm. That I, 
believe that film was written by Greta Gerwig uh-huh. as well. So it's definitely reflective of her um, life or where she sees she could have gone. So, you know, something I like about Frances Haas is how it depicts that moment of, you know, what is my life going to be? Mm-hmm. Am I am I, I going to become a success? And what does success mean? And like her having to move in with her parents, which I feel that everyone has had to deal with at some point. Yeah. Like, and there's that great moment I think about all the time where they're having like a dinner party and someone says they're going to France. She's like, well, I'm going to go to France too. Yeah. And then she's just in France for like a couple of days. She's like, I have nothing to do. I love that France scene where, yeah, she just goes on a whim and then she sleeps through the first day and then she's like, well, I, I, yeah, I don't know what to do. I'll, maybe I'll go see Puss in Boots. <laughs> yeah, so good. And, you know, while we're young, I like the central idea of while mm-hmm. we're young where it, it, it captures that feeling of, all of a sudden you've become old yes. and, and how do I fight against this? And, you know, you, you're kind of excited by this thing that's happening in the generation beneath you and how to be excited about it and have dignity. I love it that it's mostly Noah Baumbach making fun of the Mumblecore movement. Well, Joe Swanberg specifically, <laughs> yeah, it seems. with Adam Driver, even though that he is in a relationship with Greta Gerwig. So, you know, he brought it along to onto himself, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, but you say you like the central conceit, but you don't like the movie while we were young? Movie's fine, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't remember. It, it didn't really stick with me. I mean, I remember laughing a lot throughout that movie, especially at the end where this documentary that Ben Stiller has been working on forever is shown. And Charles Grodin's like, no, nah, it's terrible. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> this young guy's movie is much better. Yeah. And I do like, though, around that period, because I believe he had taken a bit of a break and he like released a bunch of film rapid fire Francis Ha Mistress America which is just him doing like a Howard Hawks kind of like um, you know screwball uh, attempt and well he was busy writing Madagascar too that's right to pay for divorce fees yeah Uh, no, Madagascar 3. Please get it right. Yes. <laughs> and so after that, marriage stories come out and there was the Marriott stories. And yeah. you said that you don't like the softening of Noah Baumbach. Yeah. I mean, that la- those later ones, the Netflix ones really don't stay with me at all, to be mm. honest. But they were fine while I watched them. Is that because you didn't see them on the big screen? <laughs> maybe. Maybe yep. I needed to have an audience around me laughing. Or, you know, not being able to look at your phone as it's playing because you're like, oh, boring. Yeah, a bit of a chore. It's- Should be watching a murder mystery instead. <laughs> It's funny, though, that his next movie is going to be an adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise, which is a really weird novel and will be taking like his kind of storytelling, I assume, in a very different direction than he's done before. Which I'm interested in. I mean, I know that there are certain Don DeLillo fans who are less than thrilled that he's doing really? it. Really? Yeah, I've seen a bit of that. They're like, bring me back Cronenberg. He got it right with Cosmopolis. But I would like to see him try something different. I, I mean, yeah. at one point, Alice Ross Perry was going to adapt a Don DeLillo novel and... The new Noah Baumbach. Yeah, but not anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I mean, he's doing Disney stuff, so he's just kind of like lapping Noah Baumbach <laughs> at this point, <laughs> trying to get around him. So yeah, Noah Baumbach, I think he's very funny. I think that even... I mean, we didn't really touch on his later films, like Merit Stories. I'll agree with you. I enjoyed it. I don't remember what happened in it. I'm sorry. Well, it's about uh, dealing with another bad dad. But in this one, they realize, oh, maybe the bad dad was good with other people that are not his sons. Yeah, he's kind of charming in that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end, they come to more of an understanding. The softening, this man who has children now, so he can't be as acidic as he is in The Squid and the Whale. In conclusion, Noah Baumbach is a land of contradictions. (laughs) Yep. Oh, we didn't even talk about that. One of my favorite anecdotes about him is that he directed that documentary where it's just him talking with Brian De Palma. Oh, I actually love that movie. Yeah. yeah. That's another, him and Jake Paltrow made it. That is so funny. 
funny that's like these two dudes hanging out with Brian De Palma asking him so many questions. Especially and it's that, funny because I see no De Palma in Noah Baumbach's. You know what? I can see some in Mr. Jealousy because okay. that's a very controlled film with like like stylistic opulence. But then he made a decision that he doesn't want to go down that path. Maybe White Noise will bring uh, that uh, De Palma magic. I do love De Palma because, yeah, it's just Brian De Palma going through every movie and telling stories about them, some of which are positive, some of which are negative. And I wish that spawned a franchise. I would love to see, you know, Ferrara. Or... <laughs> yeah. I mean, why not? It's so cheap to do. Yeah. And Noah Baumbach also interviews De Palma on the Criterion blowout disc, which mm-hmm. is really good. So I recommending if you haven't seen that, check it out. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes, hey, Will and Justin. I recently started watching the show about the show, a mini TV show about its own making created by experimental filmmaker Kaveh Zahidi. The show is highly uncomfortable to watch, not least because it appears to wreck his marriage, but it's also a brilliant meditation on the nature of the medium. I haven't seen his feature films yet, but I'm now very intrigued. Are you guys familiar with his work? And would you consider doing an episode on him? Keep up the great work, Wendy. I only know him by reputation. You don't have the box set? I have the one sitting on the shelf there, uh, uh, digging my own grave, the films of Kaveh Zahidi. I am a sex addict. That was one of his, right? Yep. Yeah. That's right. And you can still pick this up for like a hundred bucks. And it's like a really like nice box set that came out. And if you don't know about the show about the show, this is something that you definitely want to dive in, which is the first episode is about making a show. The second episode is about making that show. The third episode is about making the show about the show. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Getting like into... It's like vi- Synecdoche, New York. Exactly. Yeah. It's like Synecdoche, New York. And because he's all about like looking inwards, but almost in like a destructive way as well. Mm. Like he made a film with his father and stuff like that. And a lot of documentaries. So, I, you know what? I think this would be a good topic to tackle. Yeah, I'd love to. He says his favorite filmmaker is Woody Allen. So wow, see- how bad can he be then? <laughs> <laughs> As a person and a filmmaker. So, thank you very much for that letter. So, the next letter is from Michael Gallagher, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I've been a listener for a couple of months now and have been loving the show. Your episode on Jacques Tournard inspired me to do a bind, and he is now one of my favorite filmmakers. Oh, that's oh, nice. That's great. Yeah. yeah, that's what I want the show to do, to be like, influence someone to go check out filmmakers and like discovering new favorites and being like, Oh, wow, that is really good. Oh, these two men have impeccable taste. That is not written in the letter. That's just me saying it. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of, there are a few of mine that I would love to see you cover eventually. Eric Kramer, Hong Sang-soo, Angela Schlelek, but most of all, Max Ophels. I feel like he's tailor-made for the show's format. A multi-chapter career, relatively small oeuvre, distinctive style, and repeated themes. Would you ever consider doing an episode on him? Regardless, keep up the good work, Mike. The answer is yes, we would consider yes. doing it. I believe I have pitched it to Will. He's like, oh, man, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> you know what? You've shamed me. Let's do Max O'Fools. Yeah. I mean, he's fun because what he's most famous for is long tracking shots. Mm. Like, that was his thing. And I believe, like, Martin Scorsese loves talking about it. Like, these long, complex. Sometimes you wouldn't even notice it if you're not looking for it. But, like, when you watch it play out, knowing there's not a steady cam, you're like, wow, this is insane. It Also, the thematic material, which he went back to again and again and again. Mm. And he has an fascinating career because like he did films all over the place like he did some in france he also has a really interesting hollywood career that is a great book i believe it's just called max ophels in hollywood like breaks down exactly what happened and how it didn't work out for him so yeah definitely someone that's on the list and we will tackle so thank you very much for that letter and as per usual you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com and what are we doing on the patreon this week will we're talking about a variety of odd films 
Chief among them is I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, a movie that was made in 1998 starring Billy Zane, the first movie he made after Titanic, based on a script by Ed Wood. Yep, that's right. The real Ed Wood. And this film is filled with a cavalcade of C-listers, and it also has no dialogue. And it has never been properly released (laughs) that the company that made it went bankrupt. I actually read an article that it played at TIFF. It had one week of a theatrical showing, I believe in New York, Mm -hmm. and then that was it. Nothing more. No VHS release even. So yeah, we talk about that, and we've seen it. We found it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can find it if you know where to look. And yeah, we talked about some other movies too, just strange stuff, like a Fred Oled Ray softcore porn werewolf movie starring Paul Nashie. As well as a film directed by Rene Cardona called Cyclone. So, more riffing from the boys. Check it out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. So Justin, last week you told people about the Indiegogo campaign mm-hmm. that you were running. You wanted to, for Golden Ninja Video, get the money to scan the elements and create beautiful restored versions of Freaky Farley, the Matt Farley, Charles Roxburgh classic, and the great Canadian thriller Skip Tracer. And wow, we, uh, the people responded and we met our funding goal very quickly, yeah. <laughs> much to my surprise. So thank you very much, everybody that did that. And you know what happens when a crowdfunding uh, campaign goes all the way to the end quickly? Stretch goals. And some of them include, on the Important Cinema Club, there's a few things that we love. And with this, an opportunity has presented itself that if we reach a certain goal, I'll put it up on the website, probably by the time you hear this, me and Will will release a remastered Bruce Bloitation film. Like a new scan. A new scan of a film that does not have a high definition scan anywhere. You can only find it in full screen. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is very exciting. And I can't wait to jump on that. And like I said last week, if you like Gold Ninja Video and you're missing some releases that went out of print, grab them through this crowdfunding campaign because I have no plans to release them other than that. So jump on it. Yeah. You- get a three pack you can buy a subscription even if you just want to throw five bucks you're like i like what they do i'm currently broke no problem i would still appreciate that with that in mind as well i should let people know that next saturday on july 31st i will be doing a telethon <laughs> and so i did a summer movie mind melter and people have been asking like when's the next one gonna be when's the next one? i'm like listen this is a two time a year thing like i don't want to do it all the time I don't think this will be 24 hours. I think it's probably going to be closer to like 12, 15 hours. And the reason for that is I will do live segments like Jerry Lewis did. So like I'll be wearing a suit. I will be in front of stuff and there will be all the stuff you would see on Jerry Lewis's telethons. There's going to be musical numbers. There's going to be, I think we're going to do a live commentary. Me and Will are definitely going to be playing some video games. (laughs) So all the stuff that, you know, we don't usually do when we do live stuff because I usually just show movies and there'll be movies, of course. Mm -hmm. All stuff kind of like gold ninja video adjacent. Will there be a classic film that me and Will talk about that I could not release on gold ninja video that will play? Yes, absolutely. And there'll also be a film that I prepared for Gold Ninja Video, but could not release because I'm like, ah, I think maybe somebody owns the copyright, but it's not available in English anywhere, and I'll be playing it on the stream. <laughs> so make sure to check it out. You can look at my Twitter page at Decluge, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, the letter J, and I'll be posting information throughout the week. But all you need to know is that it starts at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at twitch.tv slash important cinema club. What are we doing next week, Will? Well, not 
not Maxo Fools yet. No. But we are doing guys in gorilla suits. Yes. We talked about it a few episodes ago. Thanks to a letter from, I think, a, a, was it like large gorilla or big gorilla or something like that? <laughs> Who asked us to do something else. Yeah. We were like, ooh, a gorilla. Eh? So, <laughs> it, you know, we believe that as the murderer John Landis once said, if you've got a guy in a gorilla suit in a movie, it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. So we're going to test that hypothesis. We know what the answer is. So it is just, you know, all show by talking about three actors who made their career as gorilla performers. Guys who owned a gorilla suit Mm -mm. and would become Hollywood's gorilla guys. And this includes Ray Crash Corrigan, an old cowboy who, I don't know, did he just like make a gorilla suit because he became a gorilla man. And essentially, if you see a movie like... I guess probably the 50s onward, it's Ray Crash Corrigan in that gorilla suit. Unless it's Bob Burns, Mm -hmm. the great Hollywood collector. And Bob Burns' um, gorilla suit performances were more comedic in nature. And so that's interesting. As we move on to the third performer we're going to talk about, Rick Baker. The Academy Award winning makeup artist. And so the movies that we're going to be watching, I think uh, we didn't decide on the first two because we need to find a Ray Crash Corrigan joint and a Bob Burns film. But we know which Rick Baker picture that we're watching. King, nope, Gorillas in the Mist. (laughs) Me and Will have never seen that film. But I'm always fascinated by the idea of like gorilla suits done realistically because they are in and of itself such a comedic thing Mm -hmm. that I'm excited to see Rick Baker pull it off. I can't wait to see Sigourney Weaver fuck that gorilla. (laughs) Is that what happens? Oh man, I'm excited. (laughs) Wait, does Congo have uh, prosthetics or CGI gorillas? Uh, Congo definitely has guys in gorilla suits. Mm, Okay. Wow, man, my list is too big. And before people message us, I had to make the decision that there will be no giant gorillas in this. So no apes, no King Kong. I wanted to talk about the South Korean monster movie, kaiju movie, Ape. Guess what we're talking about on Patreon next week. Okay, Ape. excellent. I <laughs> All just, just want to watch it again, you know? <laughs> Get out that Kino Blu-ray, because they did put it out. <laughs> so that's what we'll be talking about next week. And until then, my name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. All right, Justin, I've got a question for you. Which you won't know the answer to, but that's Mm. okay. What's going on with the Toronto International Film Festival these days? Well, uh, they're making decisions. And I think a lot of them are pandemic related. And a lot of them were already set in motion before that stuff went down. Okay, because I've seen their first list of announcements for their gala presentations. And the gala... Listen, you and me, we cinephiles, we understand that the gala selection is not always where the really cool stuff is. No, because that's the big stuff people know, will pay big ticket uh, prices for, because they want to see Johnny Depp in front of like, I don't know, Black Sunday or whatever the movie was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this year... They unveiled the galas, and I gotta say, not really looking too good. Would you have seen any galas? Do you usually see galas at TIFF? I don't usually see galas at TIFF because they're movies that'll show a month later. Sometimes they have international galas, and those are the ones that I check out. Yeah, uh, I mean, I do have fond memories of standing in the rush line for two hours to see a little movie called Chloe by Adam McGordon. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, those are the gardens that they're having an affair in. I know that one. Exactly. But it's a dream, so it didn't really happen, did it? The two times since 2009 that I've been to Allen Gardens, I've always thought about how, yeah. Liam Neeson fucked in that corner Liam Neeson getting a hand job, yeah. (laughs) And I I also always, whenever I'm at Cafe Diplomatico, think, huh, Liam Neeson every day has lunch here, and he walks from U of T to here (laughs) and then back. 
That, that's not convenient you're for, one of those nerds yeah. that's like oh the geography of this doesn't make any sense i mean look i don't want to sound like la plays itself mm. that guy but there are so few movies that are set in toronto mm-hmm. that give you the opportunity to have so, fun so you like, to that. Riff like that yeah. yeah it's not like max Payne, which is shot in toronto but not set in toronto but so what are the galas that are playing will well there are two in particular that are really sticking out mm-hmm. for me one of them is the opening night gala dear evan hansen mm, the musical Played by a 40-year-old man playing a teenager. And I gotta say, the day after New York Film Festival announced their opening night, and it was Joel Cohen's Macbeth. So, the thing about New York Film Festival is they're much cooler than TIFF, right? But why should they be? Because I feel I feel like something has happened to TIFF in the last well, couple TIFF of years. Well, TIFF wants to be popular. They're clearly... I, in their eyes, not making enough money, not getting enough attention. What I always loved about TIFF was that they were a dumping ground of international cinema. I watched like a seven hour documentary uh, at like a press screening of like a cinema scene that most of the movies they were uh, showing, I could not even see. That's what I like to see when I go to TIFF. Okay, I do love that about TIFF. Mm. I still love that about TIFF, but it seems to me that they have a, a problem right now, a branding problem. Something in the alchemy has gone wrong in the last five years. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, okay, so TIFF has always been a dumping ground festival that was started by three businessmen who were like, we're not cinephiles. We just want film industry people here. So we're going to show everything, everything for everybody. So if anything, they're starting to succeed at what their original goal was. Well, uh, for a long time, they were very successful betting everything on. We are the launching pad for the Oscars. Mm. You know, we are where American Beauty Ugh. and 12 Years a Slave yeah, yeah, and yeah. all those movies premiere. Green Book. Green Book. Yeah. But in recent years, people don't care as much about the Oscars. Mm. And what TIFF hasn't really put everything on is being like the prestigious international quality cinema festival. So what you're saying is that you think that their focus should be more on the prestigious international stuff? So I don't know how to fix TIFF's <laughs> I problem. I feel like TIFF was like, we're already doing that. Is everybody's ignoring it. You just don't know about it. Well, like you not- flip through that guy. Yeah. There are a million movies you've never heard about. Yeah. Well, it seems that all the other festivals are getting like the really good premieres. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if Tiff was getting Macbeth, you would not go see Macbeth at Tiff. (laughs) Well, no, but it's like I'm always rooting for my hometown team. (laughs) So I want Tiff to get Macbeth. And it's like, why isn't Tiff getting Macbeth? So wasn't Tiff at the beginning? It was the Festival of Festivals. Yeah. When did it become the People's Festival? I don't know, but yeah, the, when it's terrible start, tagline, when it started, it was, we don't have world premieres. We mm. have the best of all the festivals around that the changed world. very quickly. I feel yeah, because... and then, well, it seems like a turning point was like five years ago when they decided to declare war on Telluride. Mm. They were going to be like, we, we want to be the new Telluride. And it seems that not only backfired, but they basically said, we're drawing a line in the sand. It's Telluride or us. And the film industry said, Telluride. Well, Telluride. Well, I'm going to say one thing. And I've said this, I feel like on previous episodes, world premieres don't matter. To yeah. like Joe Blows like us, right? Who cares? Well, they matter to the international press. And if you got Twitter and all the critics are tweeting instantly from Telluride. Or, or, but they or, would tweet it as well when it played a TIFF, right? Like, it, Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's not uh, Telluride steals the thunder. It's a hollow endeavor because Telluride was always playing films before TIFF. Yeah. No, what happened was five years ago, someone wrote a mean article that was like, TIFF plays too many movies. Mm-hmm. And that has haunted TIFF since then. Like this slate of films, I believe, is 100 films. Okay. That's it. That's the hard line that they're pulling. Well, I'm going to say, not enough movies. Okay, and also, the movies they are playing... Okay, opening night film, Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's embarrassing. I gotta say, 
say, though, the opening night film a couple years ago was um, Legend of the Fifth, The Return of Chen Zhen. I guess they've always had bad opening yeah, night films. Yeah, they've always had okay, bad opening Okay, but what about their other big movie is Clifford the Big Red now, Dog. Now, isn't this a, a closing gala? Because I remember seeing a closing gala that was the Max Landis written film Mr. Wrong or whatever, starring Sam Rockwell. Is it the closing gala? Yep, that was the closing gala film. So, in other words, no, no, I mean always Clif- been bad. Clifford. Oh, no, I don't know where Clifford is. Yeah, uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog. And, you know, I thought, well, who knows? Uh, maybe Simon Lang directed it. And I didn't I didn't know this. But no, it was directed by Walt Becker, the director of Old Dogs. <laughs> so are those the only two films that they announced that they came out of the gate with these two pictures? Well, you know, they announced some other ones, but... <laughs> you don't care about know, those. I don't care about those. Like, <laughs> Even the, though that some of those may be the international gems that will be good and need to be discovered. Like I say, I'm rooting for Tiff. I love Tiff. I, I, I'm not saying this to make fun of So Tiff. what it sounds like is what you want Tiff is to play films by the Coen brothers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nor me, Art House choices i don't know i i what i want is for tiff to reclaim its rightful place as the best goddamn festival in the world here's the thing me and you can't afford tiff tickets like we can't it's tough yeah the only thing i used to see at tiff was midnight madness because you could buy a pass as a hundred dollars and see Mm -hmm. 10 movies you can't do that anymore you know what another problem that tiff has is it's less exciting to see a celebrity in person now yes not just because twitter yeah, well, Twitter, yeah, and Instagram and celebrities are so much more accessible. If I want to see a celebrity, I can pay $150 and get them to send me a cameo. <laughs> Think Johnny Toe would send me a cameo? That's the last autograph I got a tip. <laughs> Probably not. He might be on the Chinese version of cameo. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, state mandated to appear, doesn't have a choice. <laughs> so that sounds like you're not going to be going to TIFF or anything. No, I, I want to go to TIFF. I love TIFF. Yeah, please send us press accreditation. That's really why we're well, complaining. I d- we didn't apply. No, we did not. But no. we just want them to instantly well, send us. Yeah. they should recognize that we are the tastemakers <laughs> in Toronto. And that's why that's why I'm like bringing up these gentle concerns to neg them into Well, I will them. say that Peter Kaplowski, my pal of programs Midnight Madness, is tortured every year by wanting to program the best Midnight Madness that he can. I think, and I'm not just saying this because I know him, I think Peter's doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Challenging, wanting to find movies that people will like or people will discover from around the world. So that's great. I can't speak of the other programmers. I don't know them. Somebody watched Clifford the Big Red Dog and went, no, that's that's for us. Maybe it's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, you know what? <laughs> you know what? I rescind any concerns I have. Obviously, Tiff is, Tiff is in great health. They've just booked the new Becker, Clifford the Big Red Dog, (laughs) and I can't wait to see it.